Guess what? SK Vibe Maker interviews are hotter. SK Vibe Maker, my interviews are hotter. You know we bring through the best special guests. We are not changing tradition anytime soon. And today is all about XXX Tentacion's documentary, Look At Me Now. And we have a lot of people in the building that are involved in the documentary. Everyone introduce themselves. Let's start over here. What's up? What's up, y'all? I'm Solomon Sounds, manager of the late, great XXX Tentacion, and very happy to be here. What's happening? My name is Bob Celestin. I was the solicitor for the great and late XXX Tentacion. Happy to be here. My name is Rob Stone. I am founder of Fader Films and the Fader Magazine, and uh, we thank Rinse FM for being here and for being a part of XXX Tentacion's legacy. I feel like there's a few different ways in which people say the name XXX Tentacion. That's how I say it. You know what I'm saying? I feel like people kind of say it slightly different ways sometimes. No, I agree. I feel like there's there's the way you say it, which is the proper way. Then there's also people say triple X Tentacion. Some people call him XXX. Some people call him X. It's like there's literally Ja, ja for the ones that ja know say. him close. Yeah. You feel me? Ja say for his friends and family. But like there was def he definitely had his fair share of nicknames. Young Dagger Dick. <laughs> Wow, 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 wow. <laughs> you feel me? Much, yeah, but that <laughs> so Rob, let's start with you, man. Where, what do you think people need to know about this documentary, which is coming out via Fader, which is, you know, a platform that you established, co-founded? Yeah, thank you. Uh, look, Fader Films got involved because uh, Solomon had the vision to call us uh, and, and say, I have this young artist, he's getting released from jail. This was 2017. Um, I'd love for you to come down and, and, and film him and interview him. And he has a lot going on. It's a complicated story, but we'd love for Fader to present his story. He had gone in pretty much unknown. You know, he was bubbling a little, but he came out. And, and I believe Look At Me was starting to really take off at the time. And we sat down. We, we spent, you know, three, four days with him. Um, long interview, in-depth interview in his own words. Um, and, and then helped him. You know, he was throwing a party. Uh, you know, for his fans, and we filmed that. And there were some complications, which we could get into, of, of why that film didn't come out. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, tragically, you know, 14 months later, he, he was tragically killed, and we had held the footage and hadn't done anything with it. And uh, I reached back out to Bob and to, actually to Bob first and Solomon, and they had other plans with the documentary, mm -hmm. and there were some ups and downs getting to this point. But um, we waited, you know, and we, we couldn't be happier that we were able to tell this story together. Straight. Yeah. Now, Solomon, being part of um, X's career from the beginning, you know what I'm saying? An illustrious career, an artist on the rise, an artist that was popping, an artist that people were just spanking, that was going to do massive things and done quite a lot in his short career. Now talk to us about the beginnings of your relationship with X. The beginnings of our relationship was probably some of my most favorite moments together. Um, unfortunately, he was locked up. So we would basically spend all day on the phone with each other. He's, his phone privileges would begin, I think, around 10 a.m. So he would basically be able to talk to me from 10 to 2. And then from 2 to 4, he would go on break for lunch. And then from 4 to 9, we're back on the phone call. So I basically had to structure my whole entire life around this time. Whether it's the girls I'm dealing with, whether it's the meetings I'm taking on his behalf, where even if it's hanging out with my mom, it's going on in between the times where Ja does not have phone privileges. Mm -hmm. Because during the time when he did have phone privileges, uh, I was basically 
just doing everything that I could to help get him out of jail, help connect him, help, you know, we had interviews over the phone, so many different things. There's hours me and Bob would spend on the phone talking about deals and, you know, the securest lady would go, uh, you have one minute remaining, <laughs> you feel me, <laughs> while we're talking about closing record deals. So it was such an incredible time in the beginning because all this stuff was happening and it was happening so fast. And then ultimately, you know, our hard work paid off and we were able to get him out of jail. And when that happened, it was like a whole new world for us all. Mm -hmm. And it was really, really, really exciting just to kind of see how much his fans were excited about him, how the impact that he had on people. Because before he got released, I would go to little hole-in-the-wall clubs, little parties, little whatever, and I would hear, look at me, and you would see the energy of the kids losing it, going crazy anytime that song came on or any one of his other songs came on. But it was different when people saw him in mm -hmm. real life. And I feel like when people see the documentary, they're going to be able to understand that. They're going to be able to look at fans with their hands shaking and trembling and forgetting to even take the picture with him because they're so excited. Mm -hmm. So... That was just beautiful to see from just working with him in the beginning to doing all this other stuff to helping him get out. That was probably one of the happiest days of my life next to watching my daughter being born and watching him come home for sure. So did you actually start managing him while he was locked up? Yes, I did. How does that happen, man? Well, to be honest, I was, you know, in the music business trying to make my ways. Uh, Bob Celestin here was a, a wonderful mentor to me mm -hmm. and would always give me information. So when I felt like I had something that was meaningful, something that could be big, there was nobody else in the world that I wanted to work with besides Bob because Bob was the guy that would take my phone calls when I had nothing to offer him. So when I felt like I finally had something to offer, I wanted to give that back to Bob because I was so grateful for him because before that there was nobody that was willing to give me information or help me no matter how smart I was or no mm -hmm. matter how bad I wanted to be in the business so you know I was very grateful to Bob to help me because Bob was almost my validation in a way mm -hmm. you know I didn't really do anything crazy before X mm -hmm. so having Bob kind of was like you know, that was kind of like my big homie at the time mm -hmm. to kind of make it like, okay, so I say Solomon's okay. I'm a lawyer. I know how to go. You feel me? So it's mm -hmm. like, that was amazing to have Bob there. And I think it made a world of difference. You know, to this day, he's like my dad. We're so close. You feel <laughs> me? Like, seriously, we're mad close. We've built incredible relationships. And that's one of the most beautiful things about X. He brought so many people together. Mm -hmm. And those relationships that are here and have forged over him our relationships that are going to last a lifetime mm -hmm. you know but didn't you sign him through the glass oh like i did that? so i did so you should tell that story so basically um i went down to florida uh it was actually me and my man orlando wharton because at the time we were thinking about signing to atlantic and he was mm -hmm. uh at a r at atlantic so we both went down to go see him and at the time you know me and him was talking every day but we never had met face to face and I brought my management contract down. We, we, we actually wrote it together on the phone. It was the worst management contract ever, but we did it together. It was one page. So I went down there with Orlando, and I remember, you know, it being so much hassle to go see him, and then they finally bring us to go see him, and I'm thinking, oh, we're going to get to see him, but then they bring us to this, like, this little room, and there's a glass there, so I'm thinking, damn, oh, I guess I get to see him through the glass. So I see him, and... I was kind of shocked because he was small. He like his stature was small, mm -hmm. but like 
I kind of expected him to be like a giant. I don't know, maybe it's because of his personality or just because of how his conviction and his voice or how crazy, whatever the case may be. But in my mind, he was a giant. So when I saw him and he was like just a kid with these big brown eyes and he's just like, you know, it, like no homo made me fall in love with him. To be like, yo, I got you. I'm going to save you. I'm going to be there for you. Mm -hmm. Because when I saw him, you just saw somebody that was vulnerable. Mm -hmm. You know? So I took the last $100 that I had in my wallet. I gave it to a security guard. And I was like, yo, please have him. Please make him sign this for me. <laughs> and the security guard took my $100 and brought me back a signed management contract. And that was the beginning of the first day of the rest of my life. So let's talk about the fact that um, a lot of people would say that X is a rapper because he's black. That was said in the documentary. If you listen to his music, you can easily understand that if he was white, they maybe might not be calling him a rapper. How fair do you think that statement is? I think that is probably the best question that I've ever got in any interview about X ever. Because the honest to God truth is he wasn't a rapper. He could rap. He could wrap circles around. <laughs> However, he was not a rapper. Mm -hmm. That was the title, as eloquently as you said it, that was given to him because he was black and because he did sometimes rap. But in the same space, he would sing, he would make hardcore rock music, he would make alternative, he would make emo, he would do all these different genres. There's even, even some country in there. Even, exactly. He was genreless. Mm. So that was a big thing for him. He wanted to blur the genre lines. So, and he even said it in the documentary is he kind of wanted to be, you know, almost a unanimous artist for his fans where it's like they can come to him for whatever type of music that he that they wanted and he would try to make it. Mm. And he did these things so like so naturally and so authentic because you know he grew up with a wide range of music he grew up in a house with his mom cleo cleo's probably playing all the jamaican classics all the barrington levy's all the bob marley's all those crazy he things that was a rust in it yes yes he was versus and then he also had his aunt deandra who would school him on things like corn and all these rock bands and Kurt you know Cobain. Kurt Cobain and all these mm. things that you know really helped round out his musical taste. Mm. So as he was growing up, of course he's getting involved in hip hop. People are rapping around him, but he has this incredible music history, this knowledge of music, this library of music to where now when he's making his own records, there's so much things to choose from. And this is the time where streaming is kind of blowing up for real, for real. So it's like now you can kind of get all this music and it's not just it's not just like, oh, black people have to listen to this music, white people have to listen to this music. It's more of an open, uh, open appetite for whatever it is that you want to hear. And he knew that very well and took full advantage of it. There's a moment in the doc, and it's indescribable. Like you need to see it, but where he plays his his members only guys, him singing after mm. they just knew him as rapping. That was his early collective. That he and, had. right, and he they're sitting in the room, and you can like they're all kind of stunned. Like you made this record, like they, and it really is a special moment. And you as a as a viewer and someone who didn't know X, you realized how special as an artist he was for me at that moment. That and how comfortable he was with himself, mm -hmm. or maybe you know that he knew he had to get out of his comfort zone, mm -hmm. which is at that age to be able to do that and have the confidence, I thought was amazing. And then to then pull it off 
where he wasn't trying to do it. That was something he was meant to mm-hmm. do. Like you, you felt it in that scene. So Bob, being a solicitor, the lawyer, I'm sure you had to look over a few of those contracts. So kind of talk to us about your role in XXX Tentacion's career because contrary to popular belief, most successful artists definitely have a good lawyer well, or solicitor. Well, you know, listen, it's really funny how I even got connected with him. And it was through Solomon. So as you can see, you get a sense of his energy, right? Mm-hmm. So as he said, he would call me from time to time and I'd, he'd come to my office and, you know, I'd give him advice. I'm a black attorney. So at the end of the day, I feel like it's part of my calling to help young brothers and sisters, you know, get into the game, right? Mm-hmm. So one day I come to my office and my assistant saying, you got to call Solomon. He called he, four or five messages. He's been calling you like crazy. And he didn't have my cell phone at the time. So I finally get him on the phone. Before I could say anything, he's like, Pa, listen, I got this artist. He's blowing out out of South Florida. Obviously, he's going to be the hottest thing. You have to represent him. You have to represent him. You, he said that like three times. You have to represent him. I'm like, well, what's his name? X, 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 X. I said, what? X, what? I said, I don't do porn, bro. I don't do porn. He's like, no, no, he's a rapper. He's a rapper. X, 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 X. I said, ah, oh, man. What? He said, go to SoundCloud. Go to SoundCloud. So I go to SoundCloud on my computer. Listen to this record. Look at me. So I'm, you know, old school. I've been doing this for a while. So I'm listening to the record. I'm like, it's not even mixed, right? It just wasn't, it was like distorted and everything like this, mm-hmm. but I felt the energy of it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, long story short, he's like, you gotta represent this kid. And what was really so funny, he tells me, he says, I have to tell you one thing. I said, what? He's in jail. I said, he's in jail? How's this gonna work? Mm-hmm. Right? So it always made me laugh because he, when he was talking about those, the time period that he had the time, he said, Bob, listen, you gotta be in your office, six o'clock, seven o'clock, he's gonna call. I'm like, are you sure? Yes. So. Six o'clock, sure enough, I have X on the phone. So we're going over, we had these offers from different labels. So I'm trying to go over these deals with him and say, hey, these are the pros and cons. And he's smart, he's a smart kid because he's asking the right questions. Mm-hmm. What about this? What about that? What about this? And then all of a sudden, a voice. One minute, left on a phone call. <laughs> and then mid-sentence, the phone shuts off. And then Simon calls back, Pop, don't leave the office. Stay in the office. He's going to call back. He's going to call back. So it's eight o'clock. He, I said, you're lucky I wasn't married. I didn't have any kids, right? Because I just waited in the office. And sure enough, like 8.30, get back on the phone. And we're going through these deals and the whole nine. So, mm-hmm. so it was really, it was really the first time I met, I met him. I go, to, I go to Florida. Me and him, we're in the same hotel room. He says, Bobby, you got to come to Florida because you have to go talk to the judge and tell the judge he has a record deal because we're trying to get him out on bail. Mm-hmm. And then I meet him. And he's in, the, was it yellow? Was it a yellow jumpsuit? Uh, red, yellow jumpsuit. And he's in shackles. Oh, and he comes and says, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm Bob, I'm your lawyer. He's like, nice to meet you. You know what I mean? It's like really small, unassuming, you know, and I'm like, wow, all of this energy coming from this, like, you know, small guy, you know what I mean? So it was really, really interesting. But the thing that struck me about him was, was his intelligence as, a, as, a, um, as an artist. I have represented a number of artists, and for the most part, they're only concerned about, okay, how much money am I getting at the end of the deal, Right. And he was the first one. We had some deals that were offering, you know, potentially million dollar deals. Mm-hmm. And he decided to take a deal with a smaller, at the time, up and coming independent label called Empire Distribution. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Ghazi, right? And the reason why was because, you know, Empire offered him, you know, uh, control of his masters, control of his intellectual property, mm-hmm. full creative freedom. It wasn't a lot of money, but to his credit, 
and and he and I were making bets. All right, it's probably going to be there were like two other labels, major labels. He's going to definitely pick this other label because they're going to pay him this amount of money. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, got on the phone with him. He says, "No, nah, I want to go with Empire." Mm-hmm. I said, Are "You sure?" He said, "Yeah, I want to do Empire." Mm-hmm. And so we went with Empire, and the rest of they say is history. All right, Bob, I want to touch on something that you just mentioned there because a lot of artists they don't actually understand this owning your IP and owning your masters and taking a smaller, you know, upfront fee, smaller label deal, as opposed to signing a massive record deal. You might sign a deal that maybe they might sign you for three to five million, but you don't own your IP and you don't own your masters. Kind of break down the differences. You know, at the end of the day, you have to, as an attorney, you have to look at, take each client from where they're coming from, right? Mm -hmm. Some clients are coming and they're coming from really, you know, financially, destitute situations mm-hmm. you know they they, they 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 really need the money so i can't, i don't want to knock them and say they did the wrong choice mm-hmm. especially if they're smart with how they use the money mm-hmm. right but for those of those artists who, who are willing to take a second and say you know what yeah i can get this immediate gratification but if i wait a little longer and i can own and control my creative uh uh, uh my work of art right mm-hmm. that's the better way to go Right. Mm-hmm. So it all depends on your situation. But if you can hold on and, 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 and maintain control and ownership of your IP, I can tell you that, you know, part of my job and Solomon's job, and we have to also make sure we point out Cleopatra Bernard, his mom, mm-hmm. our job is to maintain his legacy. Mm-hmm. And because he made those wise choices, a wise choices early on, we've been able to extend his legacy, create a foundation to help people and make sure that his estate, his family, his mom, everybody's doing very, very well financially. So shout out to Ja for that. Explain to upcoming artists why, though, owning your IP and your masters is important. Because at the end of the day, by owning them, now you have something that you can sell down the road, right? It's the difference between you're getting a percentage that somebody else owns it versus you own it, and now you're in a position where you can trade it, sell it, take a loan against it, and that's where the real power comes in because through ownership, you have a greater piece of the profit and greater mm-hmm. piece of the pie. Mm-hmm. So all you artists out there, listen to SK, if you have the opportunity to own your shit, own your shit. Mm-hmm. Own it. Own yeah. it. And that's and that's why you that's why Bob is one of the best attorneys in the US and yeah, so kind. Not I'm serious in the music business because of his honesty, but his ability to explain the difference between deals and understand sure. the artist's position. Solomon, being his manager, being X's manager, what insight could you give into X being a leader and on a mission in his career, such a short career? Um, I think the mission that he was on was clear to him, but not clear to everybody else until he wasn't here anymore. Like, even for me, who was so close to him, you know, I understood what we were trying to do. I understood our goals. I understood what we were trying to accomplish in a business sense. But X had a different motive that wasn't really about business. He wanted to make great music, but he had a motive to basically take some of the negative that he's put into the world and to turn that into a positive thing. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I always make jokes about certain artists and I would say, yo, if it wasn't for institutional racism, some of these artists could be the chief marketing officer of Mm Coca-Cola. And X was one of those artists. 
you know, and because of that, he understood how to get people's attention really quickly. So when he was first building his brand and first putting music out, he was doing all these things to incite controversy around his name, whether it's, you know, having these crazy fight clips and putting his music on it or, you know, getting all his friends to jump on Twitter and support things. Like, he always had a plan on how he was basically going to capture the attention and the minds of his audience. Mm-hmm. And in the same space, he knew that once he had their attention, he was going to deliver them something positive. Mm -hmm. His first album, 17, everybody thought was probably going to be an album full of look at me's. Something that was just young, Mm -hmm. turned, ignorant, but Mm -hmm. fun. Mm -hmm. Instead, he dug deep in his heart and gave probably like the most heartfelt, passionate, album that anybody's ever heard one of the most raw albums that anybody's ever heard that's gotten praise from the hardest and toughest critics in the business Mm -hmm. so he knew that you know what he was doing with look at me and he knew that was the way to get the eyes on him and to get the attention so he can deliver songs like jocelyn flores eventually deliver songs like sad like moonlight like all these really 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 amazing songs that really mean a lot and to this day fans will you know flood our inboxes and tell us how those songs and x how his he personally has saved their lives Mm -hmm. through his actions or through his music and that's what it was really about so he knew what he was doing in terms of being a leader because he was leading a generation of kids and he was leading them out of mental health issues he was leading them out of depression he was leading them to happiness Mm -hmm. Like, and as you see this documentary, probably more so in his own words, you'll kind of see where he was really going for that. He, he clearly states that, you know, what he believes, what he believes the key to happiness is and why he's doing what he's doing and who he's doing it for. Like, he's making music. He's this character. He's this person. He's this artist for the people that don't have a voice. Mm-hmm. And that was really important to him, mm-hmm. to be there for children, to be there for people that didn't have a voice, to be there for people that had mental health problems, to be there for people that just felt alone, that just felt like they didn't have anybody. Mm-hmm. So it was about that. It was about, like, leading those kids into a better, happier, safer life. And I'm very, very, very proud to say I believe he did that. Mm. And, and to add to that, you know, I would have real conversations. My relationship with him was a little bit more than just counselor and or solicitor and client. We really developed a relationship. And one day we were talking and I said to him, I said, how come your fans like are so connected to you like this, right? And he gave me examples. He says, one, one, one day he had a fan, he always checked his DMs. Like one of the few, like, and you got like lots of DMs, right? Mm-hmm. So in this particular case, he told me, he told me there was a, a fan that said, "Hey man, I appreciate everything you're doing, but I, I, I really, I'm gonna check out. Like, I, you know, I don't think there's a reason for me to live anymore." I'm like, he, he said, and I said, "Well, what did you do?" He says, "Well, I just DM'd him my phone number." I said, "You DM'd him your phone number?" So yeah, I DM'd him my phone number, and he called me, and we just talked it out, and walked him off the ledge and i'd never ever heard of a an artist i never had a client i'm not saying other artists don't do it but i never had a client to actually do that right mm. they'd get their dms and they hire somebody else to answer their dms or whatever i'm like here's this guy getting you know hundreds of dms and took this one took the time out to actually talk to his fans mm. 
And so when he passed, you know, and you'll see it in the documentary, you see the connection these fans had with him. I finally hit me. I'm like, wow, this is unprecedented. Like he would take time to interact with his fans in a meaningful way. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Now, Rob, we're going to steer off course a little bit. Like um, anyone who knows you, you um, founded the massive platform Fader. Thank you. Um, part of Arista in the mid 90s with Clive Davis, which saw the rise of Bad Boy Records, you know, Puffy, Biggie, Craig Mack. And before we started this conversation, you just showed me a whole archive of pictures of you and Biggie and like some memorabilia that nobody could have unless they was right beside Biggie. Mm -hmm. So tell me about some of those Biggie stories, man, that some of the time you spent with him. Man, I mean, <clears throat> I, we might have to make a movie about that together. Mm. But uh, he, he, was, he was one of one. He was, you know, one of my favorite artists, but he was a good person. Mm. Um, you know, and it taught me a lot about life, um, being on the road with him and, and, and knowing him before he blew up um, was, was incredible. But, you know, like people ask how special was he? And I just remember, like, when you go to a radio station, they give you, you know, you do your interview and you talk about your music, and then they give you, like, the call sheet of all the DJs, and, you know, you know, you read off, hey, this is, you know, Biggie Smalls, I'm here with Big Vaughn at KML in San Francisco, and you read through 30 of them. Mm-hmm. Artists have to do them over and over again because they just couldn't do them right. Mm-hmm. He would look at it, and he had his lazy eye. I just remember him looking at it, mm-hmm. and he would nail every, like, his mind. One take. Boom, That's how he used boom, to record boom. as well, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Just like he just, and, it, and they sounded cool. They just mm. were like the coolest things you heard said, and then radio stations used them. But he never had to do he never had to do a second take on anything, mm. which was amazing to me because I saw artists struggle with saying things, and he would just flow through it. And I don't know if it was like the this Brooklyn cool that he just always was very comfortable with himself. Um, but you know, tragically, his his life passed, and I think being around that family and seeing the pain and the and the suffering that it caused it it did help me in this situation you know 25 years later and how to deal with telling a story like this Mm. um but those were special times puffy you know one of one and just like you know a very unique time in music to be around and a misunderstood character as well absolutely yes Mm. i want to tell you a funny story you might not know this but i ran a company called uptown records with andre harrell right and at the time, Puffy was an intern that ultimately became the youngest A&R, VP of A&R of, Up, of Uptown mm-hmm. Records. And Biggie was supposed to be signed to Uptown Records. Mm-hmm. But what happened was, through, well, this is something we'll do a movie about also, but ultimately, at the end of the day, Andre had to fire Puffy. And mm-hmm. so Puff took Biggie to Clive and ultimately ended up doing a deal, like a venture with, with Arista Records, and the rest of they say is history. Mm-hmm. But originally, he was going to be an Uptown Records artist. Crazy. Very much so. Those that know, know. And this is crazy. When I went, the first time I took Biggie to the West Coast, we get in the car, and he he wasn't well known. And we're sitting in the car, and it's me, Little Caesars in the back, I'm driving. It was the Big Mac tour. And Hawk Burns was with us, who was the road manager. And Biggie's sitting next to me. I rented, like, a big Lincoln Continental, so he didn't have to ride with, like, 12, 15 of us in, Mm -hmm. in a van. So he came in the car with me. And we're talking, like, there's no conversation in the car. I'm like the record rep, and it's a little awkward. I'm 26, he's 21 or whatever it was. And um, I said, I saw you perform in New York. And I just remember him looking over at me, and I said, he's like, where at? And I was like, uh, little, you know, West 12th. 
And he's like, that was my first show I ever did. So it was like, I scored instant credibility, but it was like a historic moment when he got on stage. Mm. Like it was a different energy I've ever seen. Perform with Black Moon, um, Smith and Wesson, and when Biggie took the stage, it's just like this little club. It's almost like the roof could have blown off because of the energy in there. Red Man was walking through the club with like a baseball bat over his shoulder and a hood up. This is like early '90s hip hop. So you're telling me you was at the Notorious B.I.G.'s first ever show in New York? In New York City, with yes. Black Moon. Yep. Smith and Wesson. Smith and Wesson. Red Man was um, there. Red Man was there with an aluminum baseball bat over mm. his shoulder walking Man. through the crowd. So what? Crazy. This must be what? '92, '93? It was probably '93. Mm -hmm. And Flex was DJing. So tell me about this show, man. Like, what was it like when you jumped on stage? Because a so, lot of times artists perform for the first time early shows and they're not very good. So, he, he, <laughs> to be honest. No, it's a good point. One, one of the guys, there was a guy, Finster Baby, who did not do well at that show, but Buckshot commanded the stage. You could tell Buck was special. And then when Big took stage, it felt like half the crowd went on stage with him. And then, you know, he was doing his rhyme and he literally was like, Biggie Smalls, a rap genius. I keep the Glock by the penis. And then a fight broke out. Mm -hmm. Gunshots. Flex is like, everybody get down, everybody get down. And there was one entrance and exit, one door, and everybody kind of just swirled around in the club and got out. But that was his first show. Crazy. So, yeah, it was crazy. You heard it here, man. Was, what, was, that, was that the tunnel? No, it was a tiny club, like the size of this room, Little West 12. It was tiny. It was on, on in the meatpacking district. Yeah. Did, did, did they even pay for him to perform that no, night? No, I'm sure he was. He done it for paid. free? Yeah. Crazy. Yeah, it was crazy. But Promo. yeah, to be able to tell him I was at that show and have him go, that was my first show. Instant credibility. It was, it was a good moment, yeah. Mm -hmm. It was a good moment. Guess what? SK Vibe Maker interviews are hot time. So look at me, XXXTentacion is the documentary by XXXTentacion. Solomon, tell me what it's like to be in the studio with X when he was recording, because I'm sure you're one of the few people that actually saw that. Absolutely. Well, um, one of the first times we had a session together was in L.A. It was a studio at. It was a studio in the basement of the Sunset Marquee. Uh, that's a really nice hotel. The studio was called Nightbird. Yes. Me, Bob, Ja, we all went over there. Ja was supposed to have like a eight-hour session. He's like, yo, bro, I need to go longer. And I was like, okay, whatever. We haven't even started yet. Whatever. 24 hours later, we're in the same room. We're in the same clothes. And I've just watched him record some of the most incredible records ever, mm. which is Revenge. I seen him do a bunch of other crazy records that night, and I was just, I was in awe. Like, he was prolific. It was prolific. I'm gonna be honest with you. Like, I have always been a fan of the culture and music and just talent in general, but I've never been so moved than just seeing him just like in the studio making these records. And I'm like, yo, how are you cutting these records so fast? Like, how are you doing this? You not you don't have anything written down. Where is this coming from? He goes, yo, I made all these records while I was in jail. Facts. Mm. And the shit just blew my mind. It just True. blew my mind. I was just, I could not believe it. Mind you, it's like the engineers are taking shifts. They're leaving, coming in. It's like I'm curled up on the couch. His other man, Cooley's curled up. We knocked out. And he just had all the energy, all the wind in the world. It was like, I couldn't believe it. How, just, how, it just, 
how much just energy he just had and how excited he was to record and just to make these records. I, even even to this day, it was so special. Like just thinking about him, like when he first played me "Sad," that record is diamond. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the one of the 70 diamond songs in history that's Mm -hmm. one of them Mm -hmm. and i remember when he played me that song and i was like yo this is the most fucking incredible song in the world but in the same space i was worried because that shit was a cry for help Mm -hmm. if you listen to those lyrics that song is a cry for help that Mm -hmm. song is somebody that needs some type of help but at the time we didn't know we never did i'm just being honest i never dealt with you know those type of uh, mental health issues or whatever. I didn't know how to deal with that. Mm-hmm. You feel me? I was just trying to be there for my friend, be there for my artist, be there for somebody that was doing amazing things for me because Ja gave me incredible opportunities. Mm-hmm. The way I'm able to take care of my family, the way I'm able to take care of my daughter, the mm-hmm. way I'm able to even save other young black lives is all because of Ja. Mm-hmm. So with that being said, it's like Here. I was very, 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 very grateful even before things got crazy of just the opportunity that he trusted me to help him achieve his dreams and to make the history that we made. So mm-hmm. just watching him in the studio ultimately was by far one of the most iconic moments of my life. Mm-hmm. Just watching him masterfully just craft out these songs with no issues. Jase, AKA XXX Tantashion, just in case you was wondering, yeah. they might not know his real name. So let's talk about managing XXX Tantashion, the chaotic figure, the mental health issues, the complicated figure, both Solomon and Bob, you could you know, give insights on this. I would say, although there was times that was like a little tumultuous, it was the best experience ever because I'm not like, let's keep be honest, he was a wild guy. But it gave me all the chops I needed to be mm-hmm. the best manager I could possibly be. It was like, there's no sleeping on the job here. You know, anything could happen at any given second. You got to be on top of everything. Mm-hmm. You feel me? And then X didn't play no bullshit. He knew what he, like I said, he was a man on the mission. And if you wasn't on the mission, you had to get the fuck out the way. Mm-hmm. So for me, I was just doing my best to make sure I was keeping pace with him. Mm-hmm. And yeah, from on my end, you know, the other thing that people don't really know about X is that he was a very smart young man, mm-hmm. right? So he's one of the few artists that I can actually have a conversation with and I'd give him a contract. And he'd ask me, well, what does this mean? What does this paragraph mean? Most clients would be like, all right, oh, uh, where's the part about the money? Oh, this is how much I'm getting? All right, let me sign it and be out. And literally, I've had to sit, no, you got to sit down and read this because I don't want you tell, talking about down the road. I don't know what I signed. It was easy with him. He would really just go and be like, right, what's this? What's this? What's this? And on the business aspects of it, you know, we, we did some incredible deals, mm-hmm. right? And again, it was because I could have a real honest dialogue with him. And we would clash at sometimes. And, and when we were, there was a deal, I'm like, bro, you really need to do this deal. Oh, man, I don't know if I want to do it. Blah, blah, blah. So then shout out to his mom, Cleopatra Bernard, because she was like, kind of like, we were on the same side. I'm like, listen, Cleo, I think he needs to do this. Da, 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 da. He's over there. And then she'd go talk to him and like, all right, Bob, I think I want to do the deal. He wouldn't tell me that he spoke to his mom, right? (laughs) He wouldn't tell me that. But Mm -hmm. I knew that I was like, all right, because Cleo got involved, we were able to do it, right? Um, So from that perspective, it was great. The other thing, too, is like kept me on my toes because every other day I'm getting a call Solomon from Solomon. Bob, you got to do this. Send a letter out to here. Send a letter out to this. You know, or you got to come to Florida. Like, I'm not a criminal attorney. I'm an entertainment attorney. Mm-hmm. But I learned a lot about criminal law in Florida. 
dealing with child and and Simon. And you know, I don't rarely ever wear a suit. He got me wearing a suit more often than I would enjoy doing. Mm -hmm. Go down to Florida. So it was really, you know, it was like, go, 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 go. He clearly took my attention. You know, luckily I have other lawyers that work for me so they can handle some of my other clients. But from the perspective, but he knew what he wanted from the business perspective. That's one thing. He knew what he wanted. We did some major, major deals. And it was definitely, you know, a, a very, you know, kept you like, if I was married, I'd be divorced by now. There's no question about that. I would have been divorced. You know, my kids would like, what? You know what I'm saying? Where, yeah, where's my spent. daddy? Like, he would, you know, I, so luckily for him, I was didn't have kids. I wasn't married, still, still not. And, you know, I was able to be there for him when he needed, you know. Over the last few years, we have seen so many rappers murdered. This year, we've seen PNB Rock, we've seen Take Off. We've seen, over the last few years, we've seen uh, Nipsey Hustle. We've seen Pop Smoke. We've seen King Von. And of course, we've seen XXX Tentacion. These are artists that have been murdered. I mean, I really have debates about the emphasis on security. But how do we feel like this is going to, um, how are we going to stop this stuff, man? I mean, well, there's one thing that's the music and there's another thing which is real life. So I have the unfortunate um, uh, distinction of having represented X. I also represented Pop Smoke. Mm -hmm. um, and he died, right? So the thing that you have to understand is it's easy for people to put a label that's all rappers, rappers, rappers. They just happen to be rappers, right? Mm -hmm. X didn't die because he was writing a song about gangs or whatever, whatever. He died because he was robbed. Similarly to Pop, P&B Rock. Mm -hmm. Like it's very, you know, Takeoff was an accident of a dispute that was going on. It wasn't because they were rappers per se, and that's something that, you know, you have to make that distinction um, to make sure that the whole art form or the genre doesn't get painted as like, oh, my God, the music itself is causing all of this because it's not right. It's it's but the security situation is a very, very important thing to understand. And at least in X's mind, he felt that he wanted to be normal. He's like, no, I'm regular. I'm a regular guy. And it was like, bro, really, you're not right. You got, you know, half your hair is yellow. You got. You know, uh, you're driving a, a, a you know fancy car, whatever. You're really not regular. You're not like everyone else. And so, at the end of the day, a lot of these artists have to understand that once they reach a certain level of success, they are not like everyone else. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, there's a, 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 a bunch of folks that, instead of being ex inspired and say, "Oh wow." He got to where he is. Let me aspire to be like him. And some, I'm sure there are a lot of kids that are. There's a subsection of folks that are like, oh, you got something that I want. Instead of me working for it, I'm just going to take it from you. Mm. So, so to be honest, like the security, even with Pop, it was like, hey, man, we're going to put you in a hotel. He, no, nah, I want to be an Airbnb. No, nah, I'd get the hotel. So he himself went on, on the app and got the Airbnb. Mm -hmm. And so what happened, the, the narrative was like, oh, the record label did it, or the managers didn't do it. He was a grown man. Like, at the end of the day, we got you the hotel. Come to the hotel. Mm -hmm. You go and decide that you want to go to Airbnb, and then, unfortunately, you advertise where you are, then the rest of the day is history, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it, it's important that, you're, that people know that it's not hip-hop itself. It's just unfortunate that like, you have these individuals that are very successful, and we come from communities that aren't as successful and some subsections of that community would rather take from you than actually go out there and get, the, get it themselves. Mm -hmm. And that is unfortunate. Rob, let's talk about what people can expect from this documentary. If they're just kind of hearing about it, 
they're wondering whether they should watch it and what they should get from it. How would you break it down? On surface, it looks like it's a documentary about a musician, right? Because X was a musician. But I think, I think it's really, I think it represents, and I think this is what we talked about early on when I talked to Solomon about it, that there's multiple things going on here. He, you, you can, and especially in society today, how important that is, right? Like we're, we're in a, in, a, in a very fragile place as a society where someone does something wrong, Let's just push them out of the way and forget about them. Mm-hmm. X, cancel culture. Cancel culture. Woke mm-hmm. culture. Um, dialogue is gone. Conversation is gone. We can disagree, but if we disagree and don't talk to each other, it's much worse than if we disagree and talk mm-hmm. to each other. Right? Mm-hmm. We don't have to agree, but we... So the conversation is gone in a lot of this, and I think kids today are growing up in a really volatile time where they need help. And, mm-hmm. and X was really at the forefront of this because he shared so much and opened up so much. So Mm -hmm. um, to our credit, we interviewed 12 different directors to find Sabah Faloyan, who was the perfect director for this film. Sabah did a film um, called Whose Streets on the Ferguson Riots. It was her first film. She didn't intend to make a film, but she made an incredible film. Um, And this was her second project. And we believed in her. Cleopatra believed in her. And it wasn't easy making this film, but we were able to tell a very complicated story because Sabah came into the world Mm -hmm. and was able to tell a story of of fair, not opinion. We told the story. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I wasn't around for it, but Solomon and Bob can tell you how complicated the story was. But it comes, you get to see that in Look at Me. And then what I think is great, too, which we just made as well is in his own words which we really allow x to talk in his own words and the Mm. one thing that stands out to me in that in the very beginning he talks about in one of the jail phone calls that we haven't released he said i created a lot of negativity and he's like so much negativity that i want to now create positivity Mm -hmm. and he was 19 Mm -hmm. talking about negativity at 19 i know how i I never admitted my faults you don't Mm -hmm. Most people don't. So to, to have him say that, we don't know what it would have been, but there was a lot of promise. And to me, that's what it showed, that there could be more than you know, two things going on here. And like, we can't just cast people away. We need to tell these stories and we need to help these kids. I just want to say the documentary is a fantastic watch. And I would say everyone needs to watch this, man. Not, not only if you're just a fan of X, but if you're a fan of music and documentaries in general. Rob, let them know where they can watch this in the UK. Yes, you can watch it at altavod.com, which is A-L-T-A-V-O-D.com. And you can see both films there. Uh, in his own words, Tentacion, and look at me, Tentacion. Thank you very much, guys. Guess what? SK Vibe Maker interviews are hot.